0: Welcome to Four Questions Podcast, Episode 3. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Angela Mariani to discuss all things Buddhism. Um, I had a wonderful time speaking with her. She is a professor of musicology at Texas Tech University and specializing in early music. And so we had, we had a lot of fun and um, got to kind of talk about music as well, which is something I, I adore. So um, before we get into it, I just want to give the general social media plug. If you want to get engaged and um, join the conversation, please feel free to do so. Uh, check us out online at fourquestionspodcast.com on Facebook.com slash 4QuestionsPodcast, and on Twitter at 4 underscore podcast um, join the conversation. It's a, it's a lot of fun. And also, uh, please do uh, rate and review the show on Apple podcasts and Stitcher and wherever else you listen. This does a lot of things, but mostly it helps me know how I can make the show better. So, um, thank you very much. And without further ado, episode three. You will <laughs> not
1: win. you will not win you will not uh, be able to drive that truck yep. yeah
0: so we'll go ahead and, and jump into the interview sure. like I, I mentioned it's just four questions are very yeah. simple and it's fairly informal but I've found so far that these questions are really great about getting to the experiential part mm-hmm. of a faith sure um but one of the things that I like to do uh, before we do that is if you don't mind leading us in some sort of prayer or guided meditation or something um, oh. that you feel comfortable with. Oh gosh. Pretty brief. Um, Whoa. But I think it's a great way to expose people to the, the general pointing of the practice because you hear the the thought process, if that hmm. makes sense.
1: Well, there's a lot of them. Um, hmm. So now when you say guide, do you mean somebody who's listening might... Want to
0: yeah, th- be involved I- if, in that? If or? they feel so inclined, or it could be just for this moment. It's really for your comfort level. Which wants
1: <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, there's a part of a series of prayers that, in some traditions, you know, in Buddhism, there's so many different traditions. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the things that often is incorporated into a daily kind of meditation or prayer is a prayer that begins, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings know freedom's true joy. May all beings have equanimity free from attachment and aversion. So there's a lot packed into that. Absolutely. But And, and that's true with a lot of, of prayers in general, but certainly in, in that tradition, mm-hmm. is that there's an enormous amount that's packed into two or three lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes you'll have teachings, you know, um, there'll be a teaching for an hour, you know, yeah. on those three lines, or, or four lines, rather. Um, yeah.
0: Reminds me very much of of traditions that I'm comfortable with, you know. Especially in in the West, we squabble over mm-hmm. over words. Oh yeah. Um, but I'm I'm one of the the weird ones who has read a little over half the Catechism. But there are a few things in there that just a few lines, like you said. They're so it's so dense mm-hmm. that you almost don't need much more.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's true in in many ways.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you for that. I think that's a beautiful wish and one that is indicative of the little bit of contact I've had uh, with Buddhism and what I've learned about it is that it's very much about not just my own uh, salvation, Mm -hmm. right? But rather uh, about true freedom Mm -hmm. and, and true peace for Everyone, yeah, you know, was I don't I don't know the exact language, uh, so you have to forgive my ignorance. But um, the bodhisattvas, right? who, yes. they they kept one foot here mm-hmm. until uh, what was it? Like a single blade of grass mm-hmm. uh, finds peace.
1: Until yes, the the idea there being that um, even if you should attain enlightenment yourself. Mm-hmm and be free from the circle of endless reincarnation or re-embodiment or whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. um, that you would willingly stay Mm -hmm. in that cycle until all sentient beings are liberated. That's beautiful.
0: It's one that I think... That's uh, an idea that I think right now, especially... Um, people need is the idea of solidarity mm-hmm. and um, you know, suffering with people mm-hmm. and, and choosing to accompany them yeah. and you know, offer any guidance possible. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, one thing that's affected my faith from from learning from Buddhism is that that is a, a very central idea is the the care for and consideration of all things. Yeah. And so uh, that's beautiful. Um, we'll go ahead and start with question one. Sure. Um, which is ve- just very simple. Uh, if you wouldn't mind kind of giving for the listeners a little introduction of yourself and, and your um, a little bit of your, you know, faith background. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the, the question itself is, what is your faith? And so if you mm-hmm. wouldn't mind talking about, like you mentioned, there are various traditions of, of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And so kind of where you... Uh, reside within sure. that. If there, if there is a way to kind of put it down the middle, yeah. or if you, you know, what not mind contextualizing that.
1: Sure, it's it's not an easy answer. It's kind of complicated. <laughs> I mean, in terms of my background, um, my dad was raised Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. and my mom was raised. Well, this is up in New England, um, in the Congregational Protestant Church. Mm-hmm. Um, in the early fifties, when they married, that was you know a big deal. Yeah, you know, people didn't uh, cross over like validation
0: so. wasn't so readily available. <laughs> no, no.
1: So it, you know they they had to deal with that, but I think as a result of the fact that they had to deal with that, even though uh, I ended up being raised in the Congregational Protestant Church, I think um, there was a lot of uh, freedom, mm-hmm. certainly allowed to me to be able to explore whatever kind of spirituality I wish to explore.
2: Beautiful.
1: And even though my mom would sit down and read the Bible with me and all this kind of other stuff, when I got older
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, there wasn't a lot of pressure the way, you know, some other people had pressure and I that may have come out of their own experience of having to you know, come to grips with their two different backgrounds, I don't know what the situation was. Mm -hmm. Um, but I got very interested in Eastern, uh, let's just call it Eastern, mm-hmm. different kinds of, of faiths, really even as a kid. Yeah. You know, you'll find a lot of baby boomers who will kind of jokingly talk about some of the cultural trends of the 60s and mm-hmm. the Beatles and, you know, right. the Maharishi and meditation and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But and even though sometimes they may be making light of it that it does have an effect. Absolutely. You know, you're being exposed to things that you never would have been exposed to before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when I was about, uh, I guess I would have been about 18 because I was a freshman in college, I was very interested in all of this, but I didn't mm-hmm. really have a very grounded background. I was interested in a lot of different things. I was interested in sort of earth religions as well. Sure. You know, the kind of earth-based Wiccan kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I was looking around. You know, sure. Um, and what I became pretty aware of at an early age is that my own take on spirituality was kind of a combination of different things. Sure. So some of those things you couldn't pigeonhole very well into one faith. And to some degree, that's kind of still true. So really, you you know, for me, it's been a journey of saying, okay, this is the closest to who I am spiritually and kind of going in that direction. Because, you know, I think a lot of us find that that no matter what faith we ascribe to, there's this and that and the other thing that we're not completely on board 100% with (laughs) sometimes, you know. But anyway, uh, when I was about 18 years old, um, I had the opportunity to take Transcendental Meditation. Wonderful. Um, And uh, it's kind of a funny story. I didn't have the money, obviously. They used to charge for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I asked my mom, (laughs) can I have the money to take TM? And she gave it to me. Wow. Uh, Which was, I look back on it, and I think that's amazing, because for the time it was not a small amount of money. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And um, I remember a few months later she said to me, you know, I've noticed that there's really... uh... Sorry about that, my phone went off. Totally fine. (laughs) A few months later she said to me, you know, uh, there seems to be a change in you. You seem Mm -hmm. to be a lot more... Sort of even keeled, and it seems to me that you seem to be able to to uh, handle anger and conflict better, hmm. which wow. was not my strong suit handling anger and conflict. Um, and I she joked with me, and she said, "I think that's probably the best forty bucks I ever spent," <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, which is kind of funny. But um, but I continued to be I, that particular technique um did not become necessarily my main practice although sometimes i still do it Mm -hmm. um there's a lot to be said for it even though it's um how can i put this i think that particular practice was devised to introduce certain kinds of spiritual practices and ideas to westerners sure who were not that familiar with some of the other stuff um that doesn't mean it's not effective. Sure. It just means that it, it is a little bit of a hybrid, mm-hmm. you know, different things. Um, can be extremely effective. A lot of people have gotten an enormous amount out of it. Um, but really, there was nothing... What's the word I'm looking for? There wasn't any kind of formalized practice, I suppose I could say. Sure. Then, um, years later, I would have been uh, about I don't know in my early 40s, I suppose. My father passed,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so I was thinking a lot about, you know, life and death and a lot of spiritual things. Mm-hmm. And this kind of thing. I did. I didn't live in Texas at that time. I actually lived in Bloomington, Indiana. I was getting a degree at Indiana University. And something about Bloomington is kind of interesting. I don't know what. Uh, Bloomington has some kind of karma, right? We'll yeah. talk about karma later in your section about what is most misunderstood about Buddhism. <laughs> yes. That's going to come in there. But anyway, Absolutely. <laughs> um, there, there's something about Bloomington. But there, there must be five or six different buddhist based groups wow in in bloomington there's it's very active and i think part of that is because there's a wonderful um establishment called uh, excuse me establishment uh the tibetan cultural center there that was mm-hmm. actually founded by the dalai lama's brother older wow. brother's now deceased um and that kind of opened the door for people who were interested mm-hmm. and then there were a number of other groups who were not affiliated with that, but sort of did their own thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I went to a few talks, from different places. I used to go down to the that cultural center and uh, hear some of their talks. And then one day, a good friend of mine said, "Hey, there's a, a new Tibetan monastery that they opened up in the Cascades Park. And you know, I've gone to a couple of their talks, and they're amazing. You want to come with me?" Mm-hmm. So I started uh and I had been doing a lot of reading cuz I'd always been drawn to Buddhism. And uh my husband Chris was very um much interested in Zen Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So we shared that interest. And we would talk about it and you know both read things and um so anyway, I went down with my friend and um it was really wonderfully welcoming community. Mm-hmm. Um and found eventually some uh, some of the Tibetan monks there became important teachers for me it's beautiful uh, important spiritual teachers for me um, it was one of the most heartbreaking things about leaving Bloomington actually was leaving that community I imagine um, it's not present here is it <laughs> there's not a lot there are a couple of, of groups but there there isn't anything here that is exactly the same kind of yeah, you know, as I say, there's so many different flavors. Yeah. Of
0: Buddhism. Yeah. It's funny that you use that word. I have a friend who uh, he always asks people, "What flavor are you?" Oh, yeah. when, when they say, because is you know, as a parent, by the fact that I had decided to start a podcast about religion, mm-hmm. I love talking about the stuff, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I naturally hang out with people that do the same. And yeah. he always asks, you know, "What flavor are you?" And people. Just glaze over. Yeah. <laughs> no idea what yeah. he means. So that just tickled me.
1: The famous West Texas phrase Do y'all have a church home? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, <laughs> which is a sort of polite way of asking, What flavor are you? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
3: right.
1: um, yeah. So, the interesting thing about Buddhism is that, you know, you have this sort of core set of precepts, let's mm-hmm. call it that. Um, that come from this teacher who was a real person, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Siddhartha was his Mm -hmm. sort of layperson name, you know. He was a prince, Indian prince, and he completely rejected that life and he went off to be a kind of spiritual seeker. Uh, I'm greatly, this is sort of the Intensely, Reader's Digest version of the story, but <laughs> yes, and he becomes this uh, uh, very widely followed spiritual teacher. Mm-hmm. And so, what what happens after his death? Of course, his his followers, um, as happens with many religions, kind of go out into the world, right. and the. the that particular faith starts to spread into different areas. So it's first flourishing happens in India.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then it kind of moves up into the Himalayas, mm-hmm. into Tibet. But it also goes northeast into China mm-hmm. and from there into Japan and then also down in the southeasterly direction into Southeast Asia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it kind of spreads throughout um Asia. Now, the interesting thing um, to me about that is that um, when religions migrate into different areas, um, it's interesting to see how that takes effect because oh, yeah. some faiths kind of get become dominant by more or less attempting to obliterate. What came before, right? And also sometimes their culture is imposed as well. Mm -hmm. So there's cultural norms and things like that that are imposed. Interesting thing that happens with Buddhism is that, as the basic precepts and philosophies move into these different areas, it's absorbed into that culture rather than obliterating that culture, right? So you have Japanese Zen Buddhism, which is in some ways extremely different from Tibetan right. Buddhism in the way it's expressed, in the way it's. you have um, Buddhism going into China, where you already have Taoism and, right. and some of these other systems of philosophies and beliefs and so on. And that's going to be a little bit different manifestation than having it go up into the Himalayas into Tibet, where you basically have a shamanic mm-hmm. uh, faith tradition before right. Buddhism. Right. So there's a lot, and you can see that in the iconography mm-hmm. from Tibetan Buddhism. There's all of these wrathful figures and all this sort of thing that right. symbolize something, symbolize a particular kind of energy or a particular kind of of um, archetypal. Being right, and it's symbolized in these figures, and people see the figures and they say, "Oh, you're worshiping demons!" And no, 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 yeah, you know, that's not what's going mm. on at all. Yeah, you know, it's, it's this, this uh, symbolic um, yeah, manifestations. It's
0: always, you know, I there's this really great. I think it's nearly three hours long, two part video on YouTube, but it's a bunch of interfaith dialogue, and the there is a, a Buddhist monk. Whose name I think is Matthew Ricard, if yes. I remember right. Yes, yeah. he's French. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, wonderfully engaging. Yeah, incredible to incredible. Uh, yeah, he he talked about how the only language, the only way we could talk about this is by talking around it mm-hmm. and kind of what it's not <laughs> yeah, to get at what it is. You know. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so yeah. Um, I think a lot of times people misunderstand that about faith conversation Mm -hmm. is that um, they take the language as entirely too exactly normative, Mm -hmm. and they they miss the point entirely, right? um, which is, I I would argue, probably the hallmark of the West, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well, we're very literal.
0: (laughs) Very much. Um,
1: We're very literal, and we're also very oriented toward... Um, good and bad, black and white, crime and punishment. Dualism. You know, th- yeah, dualism. Very, mm-hmm. very much so. Um, and so when you have this, these other faith traditions in which things are contingent upon other things, <laughs> yes. uh, it becomes very complicated, but also very unfamiliar. Yes. And so there's the potential for a lot of misunderstanding. Absolutely. There. But I think this, one of the things about Buddhism and this sort of absorbing the culture that it's in, Mm -hmm. um, what's happening right now is, you know, Buddhism came to the West and it came to Mm -hmm. America and it came to Europe or whatever. And so a lot of the things that are maybe associated with traditional Buddhism, it's changing. It changes. We have to see it in terms of the big picture that everywhere it's gone. Mm-hmm. It has changed in some way. Absolutely. Or let's say instead of it has changed, it is absorbed into the culture that was already there. Right. So. Its it,
0: expression, it, maybe, is yes, changed. Yes,
1: and it's absorbed into American culture in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certain things that people in the West have sort of imputed onto it as well. Right. So that's complicated. Absolutely. Um, So if if people say, you know, well, are you a Tibetan Buddhist or a Zen Buddhist or, you know, um, um, what the heck am I trying to say? Theravadan or Mm -hmm. whatever? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, well, no, I'm not Tibetan, as is abundantly clear from looking at me. I'm not (laughs) Japanese. I'm not Chinese. You know. um, So, you know, all of these things get changed according to Culture. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, also, in other faiths. I mean, sure. good heavens, Celtic Christianity. Let's go there for a while. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, there's there's other sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important to understand that it's not Buddhism. Isn't this sort of one monolithic right faith that is the same everywhere you go?
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of myself included. Um, Westerners struggle with mm-hmm. is that, well, who's the authority? Right. You know, we, we're very trained and, mm-hmm. um, for better or for worse, dependent upon mm-hmm. knowing the hierarchical structure. Right. Right. And I've I've always found it really interesting to see how people react when they hear that doesn't really exist, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and of course, you have your your figures. Mm-hmm. Um, someone like the Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. right? He he is a, an authority, mm-hmm. but he's not the the equivalent of a pope. Yeah. for Buddhism. No, he is in, for the
1: Tibetan people, for, but for not their, for Buddhism on, exactly
0: in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I always find it so fascinating to when people, and myself included, just have such a hard time. Processing that. Yeah. Because, like you mentioned earlier, it's so foreign right. to, to our system of thought.
1: Right. Well, and, and you know, you hear these things. People will say something like, well, I don't care if you believe in God or Allah or Buddha. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. First of all, Buddha was a guy. Okay. Yeah. This is not, um, you know, he was a, a spiritual teacher. Mm-hmm. If you believe that he attained a certain kind of spiritual awareness or state of mind that set him apart from other humans Mm -hmm. in some way um, and say, well, that's what made him special. Um, That's part of Buddhism. Um, But Buddha didn't create the world. Yeah. Or... um, Or, or you know, make the law, or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a completely different kind of. um, And I, when I use this phrase, I'm a little reluctant because I don't mean this to be. I don't mean it to sound like I am saying something pejorative about any other faith. Sure, but the guy in the sky. Yeah, doesn't exist in Buddhism. No,
0: and I would argue shouldn't exist.
1: Well, yeah, I I think the guy in the sky doesn't exist for a lot of Christians either.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. um, I I find myself thinking, you know, if people actually believed what they say they believe, they would be very different. Yeah, and if people would admit what they really believe, they would be very shocked.
3: Well, because,
0: like you mentioned, the you know, the judging persona uh, on high, mm-hmm. um, sitting afar and watching things happen and being very displeased with mm-hmm. all of it is antithetical to the majority of what, To just to use Christianity as mm-hmm. the example, right? Every Christian mystic from the time of Christ on has said, that's, that's definitely not it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I found that, for myself and I know a few other people who live in that world still understanding a little bit about Buddhism kind of helped me to, to shed that Mm -hmm. and really see what, you know, in the Christian tradition, the, the spirit that Moses is speaking to meant when he said, I am that I am, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. he didn't, if it was as simple as a guy in the sky, he would have just told him his name.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> and and there are things that that are in common mm-hmm. that people don't always, you know. I mean, um, certainly in Catholicism and in many other kinds of Christianity too. There's this whole notion of forgiveness mm-hmm. that you know if if you repent of your sin no sin is too great to be forgiven and that's why there's confession and all that sort of thing you know and um there's this notion in in buddhism that no there is no bad karma that can't be purified Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but since i brought up the k word let me just talk about that for a minute because that seems to me to be one of the things that if you come from this notion that there's righteousness and there's sin, right. and if you sin, you'll be punished, and if you're righteous, you'll be rewarded, right. then when you first hear about karma, you go right there to mm-hmm. the, oh, karma. Right. Yeah. Bad karma, you act like a jerk, you have bad karma. If you're you you know you're a great yeah. person, you'll have good... Well, we can look around us and see that that is abundantly not the case. Absolutely. Right? Um, terrible things happen to fabulous people and vice versa. hmm um and then some will say yes but you know the thing is that it it unfolds over multiple lives and that's why we can't really mm-hmm. see it now. Okay, great. I right, but I think even more than that. There's a very basic kind of misunderstanding. This notion of karma as being crime and punishment mm. is not really Buddhism. No. That karma is cause and effect.
0: It, yes, it's what has happened is that people take this non-dual idea, yeah, and try to shove it into a, mm-hmm. a dualistic box.
1: Yeah, so cause and effect is really different from crime and punishment, big time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you if you start thinking about it as cause and effect, then you realize that there's more than just an individual's karma. It's you know if you generate, you can say you could say. If an individual generates a lot of negativity, then negativity is created, mm-hmm. and there will be a negative effect. Now, some will say, well, yeah, and but again, we come into this idea of it playing out over various lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, but if you were to really go into the Buddhist concept of reincarnation, you're not the same person coming back each time. right? So how is this gonna happen that you know Mr. X who's a you know terrible person is going to come back and get his just desserts because right. he's Mr. X again that's not what happens okay yeah. and and also if there's individual karma then why isn't there group karma mm-hmm. or national karma or global karma or anything right. like that because it's cause and effect so you could say um, you know, I've got this, you know, somebody might say, well, I've got this disease. What, what did I do wrong? To me, that's a real misunderstanding right. of karma. Because, listen, you're part of the human race. We've caused all kinds of chaos on this planet. Mm-hmm. And some of that chaos has caused enviral, environmental conditions that make us sick.
2: Yeah.
1: So if I become ill because of the environmental conditions on this planet that are making people sick... Did I personally do something wrong? Probably not. But there's—you're part of the human condition. You're part of the human race. You're part of this this enormously interdependent system. Yes. So that's still cause and effect. Mm-hmm. But we want to take everything personally. You know, I was—I was a bad girl, so I'm going to be. You know, that's not what it's right. about.
0: It seems to me that it's—it's it's more of you know, a lot of people, when they first start, you know, learning about Eastern faiths, the word, like, flow, mm-hmm. it becomes very popular. But it seems that that one thing that's really interesting to me about um, Buddhism and other Eastern faiths, I mean, it's present in yoga mm-hmm. and, and, and other kinds of, of ideas, is motion mm-hmm. and this flow from one thing to the next. And it, everything is taken in context as a as a stream, you know, it's not so much about uh, a clear philosophical if then statement. Right. You know, it's more of there's this progression (coughs) that is that is moving. And, you know, not not every fish in the stream intends for the stream to take it this certain way, Mm -hmm. but that is where it is.
1: Well, I think if you think about, in the West, we have this notion of the soul,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know, people will sometimes say, "Well, Buddhists don't believe in souls, and therefore, this and that." Well, okay, but let's 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 unpack that a little bit. Right. Um, again, just as I said before, how do you define God? I'm going to say now, how do you define soul? Right. Right. Because. There, if you have the notion that there's this unchanging this inherently unchanging entity mm-hmm. that is a soul that is going to on the day of judgment be uh, aroused and you mm-hmm. know go to paradise or whatever that's that's a a, a particular way of looking at this this concept what, what we find in Buddhism and I I would venture to say some other faiths, too, but I, I don't want to talk about something I don't know anything about. I'm just uh, sure, which, I suppose I basically am for the whole hour, but I'm trying. Um, <laughs> that's that's my but, life. <laughs> but instead of thinking of of oneself as a kind of inherently existing soul that never changes, or having an inherently existing soul that never changes, I think in Buddhism the concept of self, let's call it self. They talk about no self, mm-hmm. self, and no self. Well, here's the deal: is that the self is a continuum, mm. and that's a really important word, I think, because it goes with this whole notion of stream and all this kind of. Stuff. It's it's an ever changing continuum. The only thing that we can be absolutely certain of is that everything always changes. Yeah. Right. Everything, good and bad, everything is impermanent. Everything changes.
2: Mm-hmm
1: and if you think about who who you are now as opposed to who you were 20 years ago or yeah. or anything it's you can see that there's this continuum of being and thinking and becoming and acting and mm-hmm. and everything that is not the same from one minute to another right okay never mind one decade to another so even even sitting here within the same body which by the way also changes constantly <laughs> so even sitting there inside this this body, you're still constantly changing, and there's this continuum mm-hmm. that goes on. Now, I don't know anything about any of the new, you know, quantum physics or any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not going to go there. But so let's just talk about it in terms of faith. You have to have faith. The the faith would be. Um, the 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 aspect of faith that we're grappling with here mm-hmm. is the idea that this continuum continues even after the body uh, dissolves in some way. Sure. Okay. So that really is the big question mark, isn't it? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is that is the big. I suppose that really is where the the faith part of it comes in
0: sure and i mean that's what sent that's what sent the buddha Mm -hmm. on his quest is seeing
1: Mm -hmm. you
0: know the the sick man and the corpse Mm -hmm. and then the happy man
1: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) and and, you know thinking well something doesn't add up here yeah what what is going on with this whole death thing yeah (laughs) you know
1: and this, you know, and the, the whole idea of the continuum, again, you know, I mean, even within, you, you take a group of 500 Buddhists, you know, and mm-hmm. ask them, what do you think, you know, and you're going to get slightly different interpretations of that whole idea, because, I mean, we have to remember that reincarnation was a basic tenet of Hinduism, mm-hmm. and and the Buddha was an Indian guy, you know, I mean, he was raised as a Hindu, mm-hmm. you know, and so you've got some of these... Um, Realizations, and 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 uh, th- that there are certain aspects of Buddhism that can only or early Buddhism mm-hmm. that have to be understood through the lens of Hinduism as well. Right,
0: stuff like your Dharma.
1: Yeah. Yes, and and then of course, well, Dharma. That's a really interesting word because that that ends up having a slightly different meaning. Mm-hmm. Because Dharma ends up in Buddhism meaning the teachings of the Buddha.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: Interesting. And it isn't your path. But like I'd it is the path. It's the path, uh, not your path. Wow. Yeah. So wow. Right? Yeah. It's the eightfold path and the whole mm-hmm. thing. And it's not, you know, this is my path because I was born mm-hmm. in this incarnation into right. such and such a family and I'm the warrior caste or cast or whatever, you know.
0: I imagine so, that that's what made it initially take off in India, is that people saying, oh, that's refreshing.
1: Mm-hmm. Could know? be, yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of an interesting difference. Um, mm. But, you know, getting back to that whole continuum idea, that's something that is so incredibly subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it could be argued that just dying and dissolving into the earth and becoming part of the earth. And the whole thing is, in in essence, a continuum, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So in that regard, there would be nothing to contradict what an atheist might say. Mm-hmm. You know, and by the way, what's an atheist? I mean, that's one of the most misunderstood, yeah. you know. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. So, um, so, well, I've had people tell me, oh, you're a Buddhist, you're an atheist. Well define atheist. <laughs> yeah. you know? I mean, if, you know, are you telling me that because I, there's certain aspects of God that aren't necessarily something that I ascribe to, just, mm-hmm. you know, um, does that make me, you know, does that, how does that define me, you know? And, sure. and everybody wants to define everything. That's Yeah. Something.
0: Um, that's why you know, I find myself as I move through, especially, you know, being the person who understands, or not underst- rather knows a bit about other faiths, mm-hmm. I probably become nowhere near understanding, but I know a lot about other faiths. And people all the time say, but you're Catholic, that's mm-hmm. got to mean this, you know, and I think, well, hold on.
2: Yeah, uh, sure. you
0: know, um, because I've found that you know, I was always raised around the church. And it could be argued that I've always been Catholic and just wouldn't accept it, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. Whatever the case is. Um, I'm oftentimes more at home discussing matters of, you know, the deep questions of who are we, what are we here for, mm-hmm. what are we to do with our lives, and, and how are we to help people. I'm more at home discussing that with Persons of other faiths Mm -hmm. than my own, usually, because I find that here, like you just mentioned, we're so caught up in defining things. Mm -hmm. Well, hold on. If you're going to say you're Catholic, that means you have to believe, you know, Mm -hmm. X, Y and Z. And whether or not I do doesn't change. Well, does that is that what that means? Mm -hmm. You -hmm. know, and so I've found that maybe it's a it's a geographical thing. I've been you know, I've lived my entire life in the Southern half of the United States. So maybe it's something that I've experienced a lot just because of where I met. Maybe it's a larger context, Western thing. I'm not sure, but I found that we are so concerned with, you know, we, we want to know what it is Mm -hmm. and, and how it works. And Mm -hmm. it's that, that dualistic mind is wonderful for making technology. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful for putting people on the moon. Mm -hmm. Um, and And for you know functioning in math I, I know so many people that I went to school with who are just great mathematicians, you know um and they they have no nuance within them because there's that dualistic mind goes there naturally, and I think that it's helpful in a lot of contexts
1: well it's also really helpful in a in the context of the importance of an individual. Absolutely. I mean, it's democracy, for heaven's sake, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, it's, it's incredibly important.
0: But when you, when you try to address spirituality mm-hmm. and how a person expresses what I think is an inherent draw with, within most people, that notion has to go quickly. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, I think dualism in a spiritual and religious context will mostly lead to violence it mm-hmm. will mostly lead to some sort of oppression because mm-hmm. one side is going to try to win
3: mm-hmm.
0: and so what I've so appreciated um about learning about Eastern faiths is that it's a it's a non answer mm-hmm. to yeah. both you know it, it's a it's usually um what a lot of Franciscans will call the third way
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know is It's not either or, but typically a combination of Mm -hmm. both, but neither at the same Mm -hmm. time, you know.
1: Well, and this whole notion of interdependence permeating everything, Mm -hmm. and not only the notion of something, of things being interdependent upon each other, once they exist, let's put it that way, but of things arising Mm. into existence as a product of interdependence Mm -hmm. is incredibly important. And that's related to this whole other tremendously, I think, misunderstood concept of emptiness. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and there's that famous greeting card that's, you know... um, I'm trying to remember exactly what it is, but it has something to do with, you know, the Dalai Lama gets a birthday present, and he opens the box, and you open the card, and he says, just what I always wanted, emptiness, and there's nothing in the box. Anyway. Okay. Um, but really what we're talking about there is not, uh, nothing exists, that's just nihilism, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but rather that that everything Nothing inherently exists of its own accord without being dependent on something else. Right. So everything, from you know the paper cup that's holding my coffee,
2: mm-hmm. you know
1: uh, that that there's a there's a tree here, mm-hmm. right, and there's beans and there's earth and there's sunlight and there's people yeah. picking coffee beans and there's people mashing the pulp into paper and and that this thing that's sitting in front of me, there isn't a thing about it that isn't interdependent on something else.
0: Absolutely.
1: And there's not a thing about any one of us that isn't interdependent on something else. Right. So, um, you know, all the way back to if my parents hadn't met in marching band, you (laughs) know.
0: (laughs) What a place to meet.
1: I know. (laughs) So this is, you know, everything is that, that way. There's this whole... I'm not going to go into it in detail, but there's this whole, um, the 12 links of interdependent origination um, mm. teaching that, that, that comes out of Tibetan Buddhism that kind of really examines that.
0: Yeah, that's lovely. Um, I'll have to look it up.
1: And um, this, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh but uh his Wonderful. whole notion of interbeing mm-hmm. is very much along these lines you know that not just interdependence but interbeing mm-hmm. that y- that um the the very existence of of things um arises out of this tremendous interdependence mm-hmm. and that is i think an antidote to dualism in some ways mm-hmm.
0: um, absolutely
1: but uh, it's hard to it's hard to conceptualize absolutely that. but that is an actually very fruitful topic for meditation
2: mm-hmm.
1: because you can start thinking about that and you can start thinking about how things don't inherently exist and you can even think about something like um, my mind what exactly is my mind is my mind in my skull (laughs) is you know in some cultures when they say my mind they put their hand in their heart Mm -hmm. you know is my mind my heart Mm
2: -hmm.
1: there are cultures that wouldn't understand the difference between mind and heart what what are you talking about your mind isn't your heart Mm -hmm. um that you know so if you sit there and say where is my mind is it in my finger you know, is mm-hmm. it in my arm? Is it in my head? Is it in my... You know, it's it's a little bit hard to find that. Mm-hmm. If I lost a limb, would I still be me? Well, of course, I'd still be me. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, what's making you you, right? right? So you you can start getting into this, and in a way, it can be a real head exploder. Start thinking yeah. about that too hard. Well, that's hard.
0: the uh, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Mm-hmm. Get what is all this? Yeah, in, in yeah a very, it's a very. Oh, is that is, have, was one of the more formative books for me. Um, I read it right out of college. Mm-hmm. And and I remember sitting at my uh, entry-level day job because I got a music degree I didn't know what to do with. And being in the throes of Robert M. Piercyg. <laughs> and asking, I mean, it really challenged me to ask that question of the essential quality of of myself and of the things that i that i um have contact with mm-hmm. and uh you know a friend of mine had mentioned he had read the book he said i don't know if there's anything about zen in there or what well, i don't know what that's about his he, he thought it was kind of a little a little too trippy yeah and uh i don't know much about zen but that was my takeaway is is it's a question of you know, what makes me, me, Mm -hmm. am I, you know, in in the context of that book, am I the narrator Mm -hmm. or am I the person who experienced this trauma Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or am I somehow both, Mm -hmm. you know?
1: Is there anything about Zen in the book or is there everything about Zen in the book?
0: (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, if you don't mind, uh, we, we can move on into sure, the, no, the second fine. part. Um, second, I think we touched on it's uh, several. two, three, and four at this point. Yes, but if you wouldn't mind for, for um, myself and the listeners who maybe don't know about meditation at all. Sure. Um, talking about some of the daily or, or more typical meditative sure. practices... Um, maybe that you've experienced and and found great peace in, or that you know of? Mm -hmm, Sure. Uh,
1: One of the common misconceptions about meditation is that it has to do with emptying your mind. Mm -hmm. Good luck with that. Yeah. Um, The mind doesn't like to be emptied. Um, The mind generates thoughts. It simply does. And there's a lot... Now, there's a lot of... um, Neuroscience, mm-hmm. uh, uh, let's say neuroscientific studies about meditation mm-hmm. and what it does, and how they they've proven actually now there are measurable differences right. um, in the hippocampus and in the amygdala in people who have a regular meditation practice, and it they begin to be measurable after a ridiculously short period of time of doing
0: these things. I remember in my faith journey uh, finding uh, an interview with with a person who also went through a deconstructive journey from evangelical Christianity Mm -hmm. and adopted a practice of meditation. Mm -hmm. Um, He's very scientifically minded and uh, he's quoted a, a study that said the three best things you can do for your brain are sleep an appropriate amount, um, exercise an appropriate amount, and meditate a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Th- and yeah. th- those three things are the, the most healthy activities for the human brain. Oh. Well,
1: the hippocampus gets bigger, the amygdala gets smaller. Um, the amygdala, which has to do with stress and fight or flight and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, I think. You know, I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can I can just imagine some poor neuroscientist with their head in their hands at this point <laughs> listening to me. But the, I, I, I n- have... Read that; those two areas of the brain are strongly mm-hmm. influenced by uh, meditation. Um, but there's really a couple of different. Uh, well, there's many different kinds of meditation, but there's there's two specific. Let Let's call it sort of overarching differences in, in, in approaches to meditation. Mm-hmm. One has to do with cultivating a calm and extremely focused mind. Mm-hmm and i believe that has a lot to do with equanimity reactivity that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and then there's another kind of meditation which has to do with um uh, contemplating a particular thing right um and i don't mean uh staring into a candle flame or something that would be the first variety Mm -hmm. but i mean something like The concept of emptiness, or something like that, where you are actually sitting down to say, I am going to contemplate this particular thing. Mm That would be a different kind of meditation than the sort of um, calm-abiding, focused meditation. So when people start, in this culture, they often start with mindfulness meditation, Mm -hmm. which has to do very much with the calming and the focusing Mm -hmm. and in a sense the resting of the mind, because our minds are just like wild elephants, you know. (laughs) So if you place your attention on an object and that object can be a a visualization of -hmm. something, it can be a sound. This is what's meant by the word mantra. Mm. where you're saying, like, oh maybe oh, that's the one everybody seems mm-hmm. to have heard at some point sure. or the other. But there's actually hundreds of them. Yes. You know? um, or uh, you're breathing, mm-hmm. uh, something physical. I'm going to rest my mind on the actual physical act of breathing, which is a lot what mindfulness meditation, that's a technique that's used a lot in mindfulness meditation. And what you're doing is you are giving, first of all, you're giving your mind something to do, something mm-hmm. to focus on. But you're also cultivating that ability mm-hmm. to rest and focus the mind and concentrate. But that doesn't mean that other thoughts don't arise. They arise all the time. But the trick is that as these other thoughts arise, you, you don't fight it. Mm-hmm. You don't say, oh, I'm trying to empty my mind, and I'm thinking about, you know, I've got this laundry to do tomorrow, you know. Right. Because that's what's going to happen to your brain. Yes. But well, what happens <laughs> is if you're sitting there, and you're thinking about your breathing, and you have your mind resting on the actual physical act of breathing, inhale and exhale, and you're starting to feel pretty good and pretty quiet, and all of a sudden you think, oh, my God, that exam I had yesterday. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is you note the thought. Mm-hmm without judgment that's a really big part of it Mm. Mm -hmm. and then you let it go so basically what you're doing is you're saying oh i'm thinking Mm -hmm. i'm having a thought i'll probably have that thought again later yeah the thought is neither good nor bad i'm just going to let it go i'm having a thought yeah okay now I wish I could remember, I, I'm so sorry, I don't have a citation for you, oh, okay. but I remember I heard a talk in which there was one of these neuroscience things, mm-hmm. and they were doing some measuring of, of what was happening in the brain, and they found that one of the biggest brain changes that they observed happened when the person who was doing this mindfulness meditation realized, oh, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. I had a distraction. Not trying to empty the mind, but the moment they thought, oh, I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. There was a big something, rather, measurable, <laughs> yeah. in the brain. And then, okay, we're going to let that go. And then go back to this practice of focusing. It sounds so simple. Mm-hmm. It is not simple at all. Yeah, And it, the idea that you sit there with your mind emptied, good luck to you. Yeah. Now... If you meditate for many years, you do get a little bit better at holding the focus. Yes. But what's really interesting to me, as a person who's meditated, I'm not as rigorous as I wish I had been, but, you know, I've had a lot of experience with meditation. That the reactivity, that noting something without judgment, that constantly... Going through that process of saying, oh, I'm thinking, and now letting it go, mm. that that starts to manifest in the way you react to things in mm-hmm. your
0: life. It's a, you form a habit. Yeah. Mm.
1: You form a habit, that's exactly right. So somebody makes you angry, and there's a pause. Mm-hmm. It has an effect on how you react. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole thing about anger there is another one of these notion, notions of, you know, Buddhists don't get angry. Oh, hello. Um, no. They're human. They're human. <laughs> they're human. Um, or, or that somehow we're not supposed to get angry. Right. And in a lot of the teachings, you're taught about anger being a negative thing. And I think some of this has to do with some translation issues mm-hmm. that have to do with anger the words for anger and the words for hatred Mm -hmm. because those we in our language those are utterly different things right okay so that's something we have to kind of unpack and and think about Um, but the thing about being angry and acting out of anger, anger is that if you just react to anger without that pause you do not act from a clear mind Right. It's hard for your mind to be clear when you're furious.
0: Yeah, to okay. use it in modern uh, metaphor, it's like a filter,
1: yeah. right? It's something yeah. that
0: people experience mm-hmm. on, their, on their, you know, like a photograph. There's a, you, you cannot perceive the moment for what it truly is
2: mm-hmm.
0: because you're perceiving it through this filter of your own baggage about the moment.
1: Right. But if you see injustice and you hear about these horrible things going on in the world... If you didn't react, if you didn't have any emotion,
0: mm-hmm.
1: good heavens, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you're looking for, if, if somebody has equanimity, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean they never feel anything. It mm-hmm. just means it has to do with how they process the feelings and how they react
0: to them. Being in control of it.
1: Yeah, it, in some ways it's control, and in some ways it's not control. Mm-hmm. Because... Being finding a way to be comfortable with not control, <laughs> right. not being in control, is really tough.
0: Yeah, that's the that's what suffering is, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Waiting one of the, when you don't want to. <laughs> one of
1: the many things that suffering is, right? And um, and I think, well, you know, to kind of since we brought up that word, um, that's a really interesting. Part of Buddhism, this whole idea—the first noble truth—was that life is suffering, mm. and it turns off a lot of people immediately, so oh. they say, "Oh, that is one pessimistic way to look that's at." That's what world.
0: attracts me, because <laughs> I,
1: <can't laughs> I can't go there. But the fact of the matter is that that's a a translation of the word, and I'm going to mispronounce it, so those of you who know Sanskrit, you're just going to have to forgive me. But <laughs> it's a it's a translation of Dukha, dukkha, d u k k h a, which which it's 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 a little more nuanced than suffering, sure, so it's suffering, it's discontent, it's unhappiness, it's unpleasantness it's it's the the unsatisfactoriness of life mm-hmm. and of course life is permeated with dissatisfaction oh, yeah. Yeah. in many ways. there's no way you can avoid it
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that's really. That first noble truth that life is suffering,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then the idea that that there's a path away from suffering, mm-hmm. that there could be the absence of suffering. Um, suffering has to do with how you respond to the dissatisfactions right. of life, and I'm it does it doesn't mean that you don't feel grief, that you don't feel pain, that you don't feel all of those things. Mm-hmm. But it has to do with somehow being able to remain that, you know, the boat remains floating on the waves,
0: yeah. you know, that's a beautiful metaphor and, and, and image. You know, when I was a, a student, I, like I mentioned earlier, I had a kid H- as a student and a nearly full-time job. That's, I, uh, at one point, meditation is very dear to me because I remember walking up up this street, walking up Boston on the phone with my wife and just mad, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. tired Mm -hmm. and not being in control, right? Experiencing these things that I expected to not have to experience, Mm -hmm. right? Which expectation is a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I remember she said, I think, I think you need therapy mm-hmm. or something. She was like, you're you're not being yourself. And I bring that up because I, I started practicing what I would find was some sort of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember where I had the idea or, or where I read it. I probably read it somewhere. But as I would walk to and from class, I would try to, to listen for bicycle spokes
3: mm-hmm. and, and
0: try to bring my attention there. And or I, I would try to feel my, my wife always makes fun of me for this one but i would focus on the palms of my hands and walking with them open and trying to feel the breeze intentionally
1: there's nothing wrong with that that's a great <laughs> mindfulness yeah. exercise
0: but she always yeah you know, she'll she'll joke around and when I, i'm like just calm down <laughs> you know and and she she points at at my proclivity to think about my palms you know but i i found that as i, I was delivering pizza and at night and I would get really frustrated when I would go, you know, four or five deliveries without tips and I'm not making any money. Yeah. You know, I found, well, I'm expecting tips. Mm -hmm. And these, the fact that it's not happening, this this destruction of my expectation is Mm -hmm. is causing me to rock my boat a little Mm -hmm. more than I should, Mm -hmm. you know. And um, I remember having this uh, realization and talking to my wife, as I sit there, I talk at her a lot. She <laughs> mostly is just a great listener, you know. And she said, "You know, or I was sitting there talking to her about how I just need to, you know, I, I imagined it being like a stream, and, mm-hmm. and everything that comes at me is like a something breaking the waters, mm-hmm. and you know, water doesn't get upset about it. Mm-hmm. And and the moment I try to push back, I'm putting more things in the way that create more waves. Mm-hmm. And, and instead." I should just remove my expectation and and let it go, mm-hmm. and um, that that did profound things for me. My mm-hmm. the end of my time as a student was much better than than the years before because mm-hmm. I was able to, like you said, not respond so you know um, flippantly mm-hmm. to to situations that are you know it's right to. Not be enjoying the situation, mm-hmm. but that pause and, and that moment that I had taken well, was profound, mm-hmm. profoundly helpful for mm-hmm.
1: me. But <laughs> well, we're taught to expect results.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: And one of the, we're very attached to mm-hmm. results. And, you know, this idea of not f- equanimity. It's the same kind of thing with with attachment. You know, uh, this notion that well, I don't. I like my attachments. I don't want to give up my attachments and this mm-hmm. kind of thing. Well, we're not saying don't love something.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're not saying um, you know don't get you know nothing means anything. So I'm not going to be attached. That's not the, again. We're back to nihilism. You know, mm-hmm. it's not that. Um, but. But the really, we're talking about thinking about what we're attached to, mm-hmm. and the ways that we're attached. Uh, results being one thing, not mm-hmm. just we're not just attached to people and right. you know th- We're attached to many things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we're attached to our, for heaven's sake, our standing in the world. I mean everything, mm-hmm. you know. But um, we we like results. And it's very difficult to take yourself away from that and think, mm-hmm. I'm going to, um, just thinking about something you do at work, like research. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this research, and I'm going to write this book, and, um, I'm going to publish the book, somebody's going to publish the book, and then everybody's going to think it's wonderful, and blah, blah, blah. You know, your res- results, 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 mm-hmm. all the way down, right? Um... And at some point, you have to examine, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Why am I playing music? Mm -hmm. Am I playing music because I want adulation? Am I expecting some kind of result? Mm -hmm. Or is there some other reason why I'm doing it? Is there another reason why I'm doing research? Am I adding to the body of knowledge in this world? I mean what's more important. Right. And and what am I then you could I mean you can keep going because you can be attached to that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. You know. So so I think results are real tricky for us.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I think attachment is something you know my brain when I first started thinking about attachment I thought well if I want to be not attached that means I have to be detached.
1: Yeah, not really.
0: But not, it's non-attachment, which is different than detachment, mm-hmm. right? Yes, it is. Non-attachment. Completely. Detachment, I, I would imply maybe that you can't enjoy something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Non-attachment means you enjoy it for what it is. Mm-hmm. And then as it passes from you, you cease to enjoy it. And it's as simple as that. Or, or <laughs> as
1: it passes from you, there's a deep acceptance of the fact that everything is impermanent and it's going to pass. Yes. So you love... Uh, a, a, a little pet, knowing that you will probably outlive it. Mm-hmm. Um, you, um, everything in your life, if you really, really embrace this idea of impermanence, mm-hmm. and, and, and you embrace it and you accept it, that is so difficult because we mm-hmm. resist it. <clears throat> but if we deeply accept it, and we don't, and we somehow can find a way to not resist it. Then, when something passes away from us, whether that's anything, right. a, a person, a job, a, you know, a, a sunset, anything, mm-hmm. right? Then, do we feel pain? Of course.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, there's a certain amount of sadness that just you're watching this glorious sunset, and it lasts what ten minutes, and it's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a sadness when you finish an ice cream cone. You know, I mean, (laughs) even little tiny things like that, that, you know, of course, you know, it's a micro event compared to the death of someone or something Mm -hmm. like that. But somehow if you can find a place inside your grief and pain to understand at some level, or to experience at some level, how this is a part of the great impermanence of everything. Mm-hmm. Somehow instead of being, for me, and I can only speak for myself, instead of that making it even more painful, to me it's not, It's there's an acceptance there mm-hmm. that that's helpful. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're not, you know, screaming at the moon because you've just lost someone. Because mm-hmm. let, that's horrible, you know. Yeah. What is worse than grief, my God? <clears throat> In the pits. Yeah. But but at that moment, there's. It it seems strange, uh, maybe to say, but that. Um, idea of impermanence and that deal that idea that everything is impermanent and keeps continuing that there's a continuum that that keeps flowing along in a sense can be a deep reservoir of strength i don't know yeah. i don't know if i'm making any sense but that's absolutely you know um and that's a little bit difficult that's kind of an experiential thing i mean mm-hmm. i can tell somebody that and it doesn't matter i mean if oh, you tell sure. somebody uh who's just lost someone or something well you know everything is impermanent they mostly want to s- yeah. punch you in the nose which which you would deserve <laughs> <laughs>
3: absolutely
0: you know? yeah so you know i, I experienced that hey, as i mentioned uh, before we started recording you know i'm kind of nerdy and so I tend to be the person who oh I I know a thing about this and so Mm -hmm. I oftentimes put my foot in my mouth for maybe offering sure information that doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. here you know I I, I remember a, a moment not too long ago I think it's less than a year um we were on a short vacation you know and I was talking to my wife and we were just just talking about things, and I was reflecting on death and, and um, how I, I, maybe it's uh, a little morbid or just a, a bit too Benedictine of me, but I gaze upon it and, and reflect on it frequently. And I, I w- was saying that I take comfort knowing that if there's one thing that I have in common with all the great teachers in the world is that I will die an earthly death.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: And she started crying and was mm-hmm. like, "I, that's not helpful at all. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, well, sorry.
1: <laughs> well, and that's your experience at that moment. And somebody else is in a different place. Exactly. With that,
0: you know. And um, that's really the basis of why I wanted to have this project, this podcast, is because yeah. so much of faith and spirituality is about experience. Yeah. And... You know, anyone can get on Wikipedia and, and read what the Four Noble Truths and the mm-hmm. Eightfold Path are. They're, they're right there. Yeah. It's it's present out in the world, but mm-hmm. that will in no way get you any closer mm-hmm. to the, the end goal, Mm-mm. whatever that may be. Well, <laughs> you, know? you know, I've
1: been meditating for years, and I consider, you know, I mean, like I say, I have kind of a combination of different beliefs, but I suppose I could say that the one that seems to answer the most of them is, is Buddhism, mm-hmm. but I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> Am I afraid of dying? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we all should be, you know, it, so, uh, you know, I mean, I can't,
0: yeah, I, I look forward in, in time and I reflect on what that means. And the, the, the start is, it is terrifying to accept that this will happen. But it is the thing contemplating my end mm-hmm. tells me, you know, and maybe it's a cliche, but maybe it's a good one. I should do good things and mm-hmm. help people,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and do my best to live a life of, you know, um, love mm-hmm. and and charity and yeah all these wonderful things, I should do my best for that. Sure. Because I will eventually run out of chances to do so.
1: Yeah. Well, As will we all. And, yeah.
0: uh, yeah, you know, I, one of the, my favorite things about spirituality is, is the, the asking the question of death mm-hmm. and, and what does it mean mm-hmm. for me now? Yeah. Um, and that, that's what, when you mentioned Thich not Hanh earlier he, he talks a lot about this moment
1: yeah right? this moment
0: I think one of uh, the one of the quotes is uh, you know this the the key to this moment is three breaths or, or mm-hmm. something to that effect you know yeah and, and being aware of of my end and, and mm-hmm. like we're talking about the impermanence of things mm-hmm mean something right now. Yeah. It, it's not just an abstract idea that we reflect on and then mm-hmm. sit down and go back to, to living Right. however we were before.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we're also asking the question, Um. you know, what can we do now? I mean, we, we think about, you know, our own death and then we we don't always think about, well, what effect would that have mm. on everyone around us? Mm-hmm. And is there anything that I can do, you know, if, if, if you if you want to cause the least harm possible in your life, you think, well, what you know, I mean, here's just an example. I look, we're sitting in my office right now. My office has so much crap in it, it's unbelievable, right? So if I got hit by a bus on the way home, somebody would have to deal with all this junk, right? <laughs> and have I done anything about that? Not really. <laughs> um, but, you know, those types of things are, mm-hmm. are things that That we could be aware of where most of us, even if we ponder, ponder it, are really not somewhere deep inside us. We don't really believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Even when we're quite old and I'm not young, but, you know, you know, the
0: the acceptance. I think a lot of spirituality is just just falling into it
1: i mean i don't believe it my father was only three years older than i am now when he passed away four years older and and yet you know i'm bopping along you know like i'm gonna (laughs) live forever you know so wonderful it's kind of interesting to think about
0: but we've addressed a lot of of misconceptions as we've gone on yeah that's question number three um so are there, are there any others that come to mind that we haven't covered or maybe that you feel like digging back into briefly? Um, is there something that well you encounter, uh, especially being in, uh, an area that is oh so, so far separated from typical yeah. Buddhist thought, you know?
1: Well, I mean, we talked a little bit about karma and, and already, and, and we talked about this misunderstanding of life as suffering, and then we talked about, um, I touched on, you know, some of the symbolism and iconography and everything Mm -hmm. uh, that gets people a little bit flipped out because they think that there's, you know, pictures of demons that are, you know, worshipped or crazy stuff like that, or that, you know, we don't believe in God and therefore we're kind of nihilistic, and, (laughs) you know, all of those things are, we, we already touched on, um... I'm nothing is nothing other than those. things. (laughs) Wonderful. Those many important things are popping into my mind right at the moment.
0: Wonderful. Uh, Um, well, the the last question, which is, is my personal favorite because what it does is it, I think makes people as they're hearing about a faith, they know nothing about. Mm -hmm. And as I'm, you know, in in that group, Mm -hmm. um, Kind of think, Oh wow, you know it, it's this, this feeling of deep positivity mm-hmm. toward toward a faith is just simply what are your favorite things about your faith practice mm. the maybe some of the wisdom or insight or just the the aesthetic enjoyment
1: wow well those are those are really different things i mean Very the, much. As, the aesthetic enjoyment um That's kind of interesting with Buddhism, because you've got really uh, different aspects of that. I mean, you have those kind of beautiful, stark Japanese zendos, you know, Mm -hmm. with sort of one flower and one little Buddha statue. And Mm -hmm. then you go into a Buddhist gompa, which is the word for zendo. And it's, uh, uh, excuse me, Tibetan Buddhist gompa or zendo. And it's like this riot of colors and pictures and, Mm -hmm. and smells and bells and... You know, banners and the everything. Mandalas. Yeah, oh my gosh, you know. So um, so that is... I, I'm a person who actually, for my... This is kind of funny because this was something that my mother found really puzzling about my attraction to certain kinds of Buddhism. Um, I kind of like the smells and bells thing,
0: you
1: yeah. know. Uh, I like ritual.
0: I had, uh, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I find
1: that ritual. I don't know. There's it. It it, it, it is an outward manifestation of something mm. inside. Mm,
2: good way, good way That seems
1: to, that. to be a kind of body mind kinesthetic. I don't mm-hmm. know. I I like it.
0: It's almost as if engaging in the ritual whether or not your spirit is is there Mm -hmm. at the beginning it kind of calls your spirit to attention and draws you in
1: yeah there's a there's this idea who is this was it huxley somebody talks about the transporting object Mm. that certain well it's like the mass the mass is basically a performative event oh yeah and it it creates a state of mind Mm mm-hmm and a lot of ritual creates a state of mind. Absolutely. And the state of mind. Now, there's other other faiths, other ways of looking at things to say, hey, you should be able to get that state of mind without all of the trappings. Okay. You know, that's, oh, my goodness, congregational church in New England. Yeah. Nice hard seat, no stained glass windows, plain. Yeah. Everything's plain, you know, and your, your individual uh, relationship with God is, you know, up to you, nobody's going to be, there's no intercession, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's how I was raised. Super, you know, I mean, no no um, religious icons, mm-hmm. and no, none of that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, but, you know, sometimes we would go to weddings, you know, on my dad's side, and it was incense and music and, you know, I mean...
0: Statues, statues, Delore. and
1: stained glass <laughs> windows, and all kinds of stuff going on that I thought was awesome.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> when I
1: was a kid. That's a large you part
0: know? of my draw. You know, I, because I, I would find myself thinking about that and rebelling against um, my grandparents who were doing nothing but just trying to keep me from, you know, uh, doing things I shouldn't, you know, sure. th- think on good things. And so I, in rebelling, I was like, oh, you shouldn't need all of that, mm-hmm. you know. And then I, I came to the realization, well, if it's not plain as day in front of you, mm-hmm. you won't recognize it when it's not there.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, y- you need to cultivate an environment of, you know, in the Christian tradition, we would say experiencing mm-hmm. the divine, right? Experiencing yeah. this presence. You need to, you know, learn how to do that in an easy way. Yeah before you could do it in, in the world. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Matthew Ricard in that same uh, video said, e- everyone can meditate wonderfully when they're, you know, full from lunch and sitting in the sun. Right, right. It takes no work. Yeah. It's it's when you're in the, the hard situations that it takes the real master to meditate. Yeah. And I... That's that, true. Th- this makes me think of that, you know, the idea that we have this... You know, ritual to teach us how how to recognize this, mm-hmm. so that we, when we are in places without it, we can still call it divine. Yeah.
1: Well, that's true, and and I think that it depends on the individual. I think some individuals find all that distracting. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of it. I think it's very individualistic. I think well, that's the reason why there are so many faiths in the world. You know, <laughs> Certainly. Um, I think it, you know, whatever calls to you. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who, uh, for whom there would be nothing more. There's no cathedral in the world that could come close to standing in, you know, a grove of aspens. Yeah.
0: Which, so, as you know, I occupy a really odd place of both and, both and. And that I. I love the tall steeples and the ornate, mm-hmm. you know, Baroque architecture, and I love it. And um, I simultaneously step into nature as what I like to call the first gospel mm-hmm. in the Christian tradition. You know, that's it, nice. Yeah. if I think if more Christians would look at Genesis, mm-hmm. as, you know, the, the story says, and it was good. Mm hmm it's the good news yeah so maybe
1: we can stop messing with Mm -hmm. it we
0: just we just didn't get it for Mm -hmm. thousands of years in the Christian tradition and then some other guy came and said Mm -hmm. hey you're you're missing the point you know (laughs) and uh uh, I I think it's it's beautiful that you mention the individualism within that which is something that I think is really nice about Buddhism Mm -hmm. is that it is very personal Mm -hmm. it's no one can do it for you or hand it to you mm-hmm. it's they they can place it on the table in front of you mm-hmm. but it, it's up it's up to the to the individual to pick yeah, you it up.
1: take you take what works for you and you leave the rest mm-hmm. I mean the dalai Lama has said that that's wonderful i mean that was actually one of the things that impressed me the most the first time I heard him speak uh in person you know it was a huge crowd of, of course in bloomington and um He got to the end of his talk and he said something, I won't be able to remember the exact quote, but he said something like that. That's, Mm. you know, whatever you've heard today, if there's anything that's useful to you, please, you know, take it with you. And Mm. if there's things that are unuseful to you, just forget it. Basically forget it. And I sat there and I thought, wow, that's refreshing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A a note on, on the Dalai Lama, he I love watching videos of him speak because mm-hmm. he he's so childlike mm-hmm. in, in his, you know, he he kind of laughs at things mm-hmm. and he's very humorous, doesn't mm-hmm. take himself too seriously. Mm-hmm. I saw a, a short conversation between him and Desmond Tutu mm-hmm. and he, uh, you know, just is holding his hand and is laughing and mm-hmm. joking with him and there's this, this kind of playfulness about it mm-hmm. in which, he, he, you know, oftentimes I find that people who Um, people who get close to the thing that we're all searching for Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes come away, you know, we would expect them to be solemn and and Mm -hmm. downtrodden from the burden of of wisdom. But most of the time they come away with this just Mm -hmm. joy. And and this, you know, it's borderline giggly. Mm -hmm. And and, um, I think that's the draw toward those teachers.
1: It's funny, I, I remember there was there were some teachings that were given in, in Indiana at one point by a very uh, highly revered um, Tibetan Lama. Mm. And he came and did these wonderful talks and wonderful teachings. And um, we were all, it was a retreat, more or less. So we were all being housed with mm. these different folks up there. And, And um, I walked out of the house in the morning, and I saw him, that these people had a swing set, Mm. probably for their kids, Mm -hmm. and he was swinging on the swings, and obviously just enjoying himself immensely, (laughs) you know, and I thought, well, that's awesome. (laughs) I mean, yeah. you know, he'd, he'd come back and people were all very respectful and, you mm-hmm. know, that's kind of, you know, um, the whole thing. But, mm, yeah. you know, he went outside and jumped on the swing set. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, cool.
0: <laughs> my My children have taught me taught me more about spirituality and connection mm-hmm. just by being little kids, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, oh my goodness, yeah. And uh, I, I all the time will find myself trying to work and, you know, thinking and or whatever, something that's not near as important as the daddy come play. Mm -hmm. And that the idea of play is something that we write off as uh, maybe it's adulthood or maybe it's the always working society that we're Mm -hmm. in, you know, Um, but the idea that, oh, play there's no point to it, so mm-hmm. I won't do it. But that's precisely the point. Yeah, the it's, sense of wonder. It's, yes, it's to do things just because. Mm-hmm. A- and I think that's, the in, in recent months, one of the things I've come to enjoy about liturgy and ritual is I'm not lighting the candle for any reason. But that's why I light the candle. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, I, I'm not, no no one is making me. Mm-hmm. Do this. There's no prescription. No. Um, but the fact that I'm not thinking about the efficacy mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm. is why I get benefit. Yeah. You know, uh, about meditation. You know, talking about the the neural benefits from mm-hmm. it. If that's why you start meditating, and that's all you can think about, you won't meditate. Mm-mm. You know. Um,
1: I thought you'll sit and think about. Neuroscience.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which is... It's fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not meditation. <laughs> and so um, I found <clears> myself <throat> reflecting heavily on... It's good to understand the why. It's it's good to know. Knowledge is a good thing. And at some point, you have to set it down for a little bit. Mm-hmm. You have to take all that you know and all these things mm-hmm. and... Like stones, set them down so that you may be mm-hmm. free for a while.
1: It's what uh, the Zen teachers call don't know mind. Oh, wow. They literally call it that. You know, that to be in a state of don't know mind. Wow. Which is... We don't, you know, we're not comfy there at all. No. <laughs> Till we get there, then it feels pretty good. But, <laughs> sure know, thing. It's... Um, we don't want to not know.
0: But, uh, uh, I... You know it's the aversion to the the questions Mm -hmm. you know we we think uh, like a questions a a hard what is my role on this planet Mm -hmm. you know what it what should i do in this moment Mm -hmm. maybe you're at work and there's a a a situation that you feel ethically compromised Mm -hmm. about and, and that that sense of of not knowing mm-hmm. is something that we fear and mm-hmm. rightfully so mm-hmm. but i think the idea of saying well i don't know mm-hmm. is, i don't know is a beautiful place to mm-hmm. live yeah though never easy
1: <laughs> it's very difficult that's got to be a really difficult thing for teachers professors anybody in academia mm-hmm. um one of the things that just sets you free i believe in a certain way when you're teaching is when you reach that point where you just can say to a student who asks you a question i don't know i don't know the answer to your question mm-hmm. you know i could sit here and you know throw some bull around whatever mm-hmm. you know but you know i i don't know
2: mm-hmm.
1: it would be great if you would look look that up Come yeah. back and tell us. I don't know. You know. Um, and most of the time, you know, students don't mind that. They appreciate that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, I don't know either. So maybe we have something in common,
0: right? Isn't it wonderfully humanizing? <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, you know, what am I? Just a
0: person. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: You know, I mean, you know, I tell my doctoral students sometimes, you know, what's the difference between you and me? Three courses? <laughs> you know, I'm done and you're not yet. Yeah. You know? So yeah. I mean that's obviously experience plays into it and all that kind of sure. stuff. But I mean, you know, we labels, we love labels.
0: Oh, don't we all? Yeah. I so. recently for for this podcast interviewed the local imam. Oh, nice. And it was such a beautiful experience. Mm. Um but he mentioned in talking about you know some interreligious struggles that are um, very present and challenging for my Muslim brothers and sisters oh, on this sure. planet. Yeah. Uh, my goodness. He he said that Islam believes that God does not give labels; we give labels. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, you know, have been reflecting on that mm-hmm. since our encounter, and so it, it's it's really. Encouraging that you that you mention that because that's a seems to be a, th- a theme, yeah, throughout a lot of yeah, what we're experiencing socially, uh, um, that the the labels that get thrown around mm-hmm. are meaningless, mm-hmm. and the greatest thing we can do is, y- you know, remind people that these labels are meaningless.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true.
0: Well, thank you for your time. Um, oh, you're very welcome. I, I appreciate you being so, so gracious, um, to to meet with me and and, and speak about your faith and, it's my and spirituality. my pleasure. Um, for uh, For the sake of of wrapping up, I, I typically like to uh, end with some sort of of you know uh, greeting or or. or phrase from the faith, um, for, for example, in my faith, and you're aware, we, we always tell people, peace be with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if is there um, a, a, an equivalent from some Buddhist traditions that you'd be comfortable kind of signing off with?
1: Well there's, there's a couple of things, but I, uh, yeah, let me think of, of, of a couple of things. Uh, one, is at the end of our practice sometimes what we do is we do something called dedicating the merit. Mm, mm. And so basically what you're doing is thinking whatever good positive energy I have um generated with mm. this practice of mine um I dedicate it to the well-being of all sentient beings. Beautiful. So to dedicate the merit of your practice um is something that is a nice wrap-up for a lot of a lot of Buddhists will do that at the end of their practice that's but wonderful. i think i think i'd like to leave with something else okay. um we talked about results mm-hmm. and that's a really difficult one and we're in really really difficult times right now yes. and if you don't get attached to results, then what are you really doing? You're showing up. But some years ago, I read and I'm still searching to find who said this, because I remembered the contents of the article, and I didn't remember the teacher's Mm -hmm. name. But at some point, and this was about results and things like that, Mm -hmm. and I remember that it was a Zen teacher, a a female Zen teacher, so I just have to find out who it was. And she said, we must show up for the impossible.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And that stuck with me for years, because really, in these difficult times, Mm -hmm. when it feels every day when we open our eyes, Mm -hmm. like everything is impossible, right? but we must show up anyway so to to leave us with this idea they're really connected in a way Mm
2: -hmm.
1: because to dedicate the merit of your practice to all sentient beings to have this um, ideal Mm -hmm. that you're going to help to lead all sentient beings some enlightened state of mind is really to show up for the impossible absolutely but that's what we do that's what we're doing that's wonderful and to just continue to show up would be really the last thing that i would like to leave to leave you with thank you
0: you're welcome (laughs) thank you again to my guest dr Angela mariani check out her radio show it's on indiana public media and the show is called harmonia i think everyone will really enjoy it check us out online at fourquestionspodcast.com there you can find all the links to the various social media outlets and as always peace be with you